Welcome to SimonCast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute. I'm John Shaw, the director of the Institute. In August of 2021, the Institute launched a new conversation series called Illinois Authors. A few years ago, as we were preparing for our Renewing Illinois Summit for college students, we asked several prominent Illinoisans to recommend books that would give students a wide-ranging and nuanced understanding of the Prairie State. We ended up with a long and varied reading list that underscored the richness and diversity of our state, and I was inspired to learn more about Illinois literature from the writers that bring its history and culture to life on the page. What follows is the conversation from our Illinois author series. And we're really, really delighted today to be joined by Kristen Hoganson, professor of history at the University of Illinois. Kristen has an interesting background. She grew up in a foreign service family, uh, lived some overseas in the Washington, D.C. area. She went to undergrad at Yale and uh, then worked for a while, came back to school, got her doctorate in history at Yale, uh, then went to Harvard for a teaching uh, assignment, worked there for a number of years, and then she and her husband moved to Champaign, Illinois uh, for uh, positions at the University of Illinois. Uh, She's done some great scholarship. We'll talk about several of her books, but particularly we're going to talk about a book that just came out recently in the last couple of years called The Heartland in American History, which is a terrific book, which will really um, challenge how we think about Illinois history. It's a very interesting, well-written uh, graphically rich book, and it's really been a delight to read and to study. And I look forward to talking to Kristen about it. So Kristen, good afternoon. Hi, John. Thanks so much for having me. It's really great to talk to you today. Well, thank you so much. Well, tell us a little bit about growing up. I know you're uh, in reading an essay you wrote. Uh, your, your dad was a foreign service officer. You were overseas a lot. You had some really rich experiences there. You're also back, you know, I think he was, I had uh, a home in Northern Virginia when you were posted in Washington. Tell us about kind of the growing up years and how that shaped your interest in the world. Yeah, so um, you don't have hours and hours to hear about my entire childhood um, experience, uh, but you know, we did travel a bit and live overseas a bit in a time um, before you know the entire world was kind of self-consciously globalized i remember as a child for example like sitting on the lap of pilots flying a you know flying a pan am plane across the pacific you know you could never do that now but i think i experienced the world at that time you know through through the eyes of a child you know not through a foreign policy um expert um but what i realized later in life when i went back to um school to get my phd in history i went back to study women's history but I couldn't get over my childhood as a foreign service kid and was always very curious still about US and the world kind of topics, which then eventually led to my first book, which was a gender history. It was on masculinity and manhood in the Spanish American and Philippine American um, war. So, so the gender was there with, with the masculinity, but I went down a foreign policy direction, um, which I think is you know, a result of family dinner table conversations and early childhood experiences. Well, in the essay I read, essay I read you, you, you listed a few uh, teachers who are kind of important in your development. One was a, a professor, or, excuse me, a high school teacher by the name of John Smith, who uh, was challenging. And then also a writing tutor, Fred Strybraw. Did I pronounce that right? Streeby, Fred Streeby. Yeah. Okay. And then also your, uh, your advisor at, at Yale, Nancy Cott. So talk about the three of them and how they kind of shaped your, your development as a, a historian. Yeah, so I hear from so many students about high school history classes that emphasize 
timelines and memorizing dates and just prepping for the AP exam. And I am so grateful that I did not have that kind of a high school history teacher. I had Mr. Smith for world history and then I had him for AP US history and then I did an independent government um, readings class um, with him in part to free up time for student council and he was the advisor for student council. Um, so I had a lot of contact with him and it was all about interpretation and debate. And um, history as something that was about question asking, it was about curiosity and it was about critical inquiry. Um, and so it wasn't like you've got to memorize this, 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 and this. It was about like, what's going on here? And, and how do we make sense of it? And if you have competing perspectives on it, duke it out, right? Like bring evidence to bear on what you're trying to say and let's, let's have a debate. And so I think that was really formative um, for me. Um, as I said in that essay you um, read, I had big athletic ambitions as a young person. I was really into rowing. I went to a public high school, but Northern Virginia, we were by the Potomac River. We had a crew team and you know, I lived to go out on the water. That was the thing, my passion in high school. And um, as a result, I think I didn't spend as much time as I might have um, thinking about things like writing. And when I got to college, I felt like I really was not a very good writer. I didn't do very well freshman, sophomore year. So maybe it was because I was always doing sports, but um, I, I think I hadn't really learned some skills that I subsequently learned. And Fred Streeby was just instrumental in helping me become a better writer. And I feel like there's some people who can sit down now at their computer and just hammer out things. I, I think they're rare. Um, I think most of writing is about revising and, and reading your work critically and going back and, and taking another look and fixing and sharing it with readers, getting their feedback, what they don't understand. So I think writing is a process, not just, you know, you either have the gift or not. Um, but Fred Streeby gave me a lot of tools. And one of the main ones was I would go in with a draft of of paper when I um, went to see him and, and he would have me walk him through the paper, you know, what, what's your argument? And then how does this, the first paragraph support it, the second paragraph, the third, you, you had to be able to explain, to paraphrase, you know, you can just read them the sentences, you had to be able to say it in different words to paraphrase the point of everything. And if you couldn't do that, or if I couldn't do that as the person going in to talk to him, then that told us something, right? Like I didn't understand what I was trying to say. And so I think the main thing that he taught me to do was to self-edit and to, to um, look for um, kind of logical flow and clarity across um, paragraphs and to be more aware of the reader and, and to think about how, even if I might've had a lot of the pieces of what I was trying to say in my head, the reader doesn't have that in their head because they haven't looked at all the primary sources or read the books or done, done the research. And so to always be thinking about what does the reader know and to make sure that I'm putting enough of those miscellaneous things from my head down on the page so that the reader can follow along. So I'm greatly indebted to him for um, helping me become a better writer. And then um, Nancy Cott, I'm just so fortunate um, to have had her as an advisor. So I started off as an undergrad as an American studies major, not as a history major. And again, I think that in part is my foreign service background, right? You know, just kind of the curiosity, you know, what is my country, right? Um, you know, what, what is this history, but also literature, film, um, you know, kind of sociological, anthropological, you know, kind of approaches to understanding this like very complicated thing that is the United States. And early on, I uh, was going down a literature track 
but we had to write uh, junior uh, seminar papers. And I wrote on Carrie Chapman Cat and the National Committee um, for the Cause and Cure of War. And so Cat was a, a leading suffragist. And then after the passage of the 19th Amendment, she, like many suffragists, turned to peace activism. And so for my junior paper, I um, pursued that and was just really interested in their kind of um, language of female superiority. That thought, they thought that women were moral and, and morally superior to men, basically, and men were into hard kind of killers. And they needed the female you know, instincts and um, essential attributes to um, promote a better international understanding. And then for my senior essay, I decided I wasn't gonna go down this, the literature route that I was becoming more of a historian. And I decided I would follow um, those women in the peace movement um, into their lobbying efforts to try to figure out how did they take this kind of women-centered rhetoric and try to you know, influence congressmen who were male in the, in the time period, overwhelmingly so. And so then I spent a lot of time looking at um, testimony before congressional uh, committees. And I was so fortunate that Nancy Cott agreed to become my senior thesis advisor. And she is just um, brilliant and um, you know, laser sharp. <laughs> you know, you're wrong on the following five counts, one, two, three, four, five, um, and gave me great feedback. And then I, as you said, I took time off, but then um, decided to go back to grad school um, after trying some other things and realizing, you know, if I was going to be working 70 hours a week, I wanted to be doing something I really enjoyed. And history was that thing. And then I was very fortunate to have her as my uh, dissertation advisor as well. And then your dissertation uh, became effectively the book that you had referenced earlier, Fighting uh, for American Manhood, How Gender Politics Provoked the Spanish-American and Philippine-American Wars. I know that represents years of work, but if you had to kind of summarize where you were going with this book and this this research, how would you do so? Yeah, so that policymakers are not just, you know, abstract intellectuals who don't exist in a cultural context, that they're profoundly shaped by the cultures they live in. And one of the cultural phenomena that has affected their outlooks and policies has been gender. And that if you look at the wars around 1898, the Spanish-American Cuban War, the Philippine-American War, you know, everyone thinks it's all about, you know, if thinking about gender as Theodore Roosevelt is the one-off, right, with his desire of like, we need a war for its own sake, that'll be good for the country. He was not a one-off, right? <laughs> that that kind of rhetoric was um, pervasive and I argue it, it affected policy. Well, you, uh, you, you, you came to U of I to teach and, um, and the focus became just more uh, American foreign policy, as I understood. You're, there, maybe they had other people who were teaching women's studies, and so that niche was was inhabited. But I, I read an, an interesting essay you you wrote about just how you teach American foreign policy. And I want to read a couple of sentences and have you sort of play off it. You said, one of the greatest challenges I've encountered in teaching the history of U.S. foreign relations is convincing students that the history of the United States and the world is not just a story of presidential leadership and diplomatic dispatches. That is also a story of grassroots activists, immigrants, missionaries, consumers, and countless other ordinary people. Some of my students have resisted this interpretation because of their prior encounters with history, but many others have welcomed my efforts to open up foreign relations history, reporting that it makes them, helps them understand better the globalizing world in which they live. Talk about, about that approach to foreign policy as not just being you know, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the State Department, but a much kind of more inclusive and broader approach to, to the study of foreign policy. Yeah, so I think the field has just changed 
profoundly over the course of my career. So when I went to grad school back in the late, um, um, mid to late 1990s, the field was very much a top-down field that centered on diplomacy and elite policymakers. But for a number of reasons, um, including um, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, and greater attentiveness to globalization, um, but also due to things like the rise in social history and cultural history and attentiveness to ethnic studies and, and histories of human mobility um, and migration. Um, the field has just utterly transformed um, since that time. And so all those topics that you, you just listed um, are now recognized as being you know, much more significant to the field than they were when I was an early career scholar, which is not to say that the diplomacy components of the story have gone away, you know, to the contrary, they're still recognized as, as incredibly important that, you know, power matters, government matters, structures um, matter. Um, but the cast of characters understood as being part of the story is a much broader cast of uh, characters. And then the themes um, have opened out um, as well um, in ways that, you know, I think are just really important um, for our, understanding of the interconnected world that we inhabit um, today. Well, you, in this essay, you, you talk about coming to U of I, I think in 1999, and you refer to it as a, quote, sparky, collegial, democratic, principled history department that nurtures junior faculty. Tell us about your, your, um, your, your arrival at U of I's history department and how, how that department has changed um, over the years. Oh, I'm just so lucky to be here. I just, you know, feel profoundly grateful for where I have landed. My department has shaped me in so many ways. Um, and, you know, I came as a spousal hire. I, I followed an academic partner. So I was just grateful to have a job, right? Um, and not to have to leave the profession because it's really difficult for academic couples to find two, you know, to find any jobs and then to find two in the same town. It's just, um, we were incredibly unfortunate. Um, as you said, even though I had gone to grad school to study women's history, what my department needed was foreign relations. And, you know, I have to say, as a trailing partner, there was a little bit of bitterness about that at the time, right? I didn't want to have to reinvent myself, um, but I did because that's what the department needed. And it was the best thing that possibly could have happened to me because I think I was in on the ground floor of the scholarly developments I was just telling you about, which is, have just been transformative. The opening up of, of histories that had once been bounded by the nation state, you know, where everyone would kind of study in their own national silo. You would do either US history or German history or Mexican history, whatever. And you wouldn't kind of look laterally unless you were doing diplomacy. Those, those days are um, over, at least um, for now. And it's been really exciting to be somebody who's been doing more global history, US and the world kind of history, foreign um, relations broadly conceived history. And it's because of landing at UIUC that that um, happened for me. And then one of the things I love so much my, about my department is that, you know, it's a small town and it, we, we socialize a bit outside of, you know, just faculty meetings in the hallways. And it's a very collegial department where people talk across geographies much more in, the, in my, than in my prior departments. And so that has been hugely um, beneficial um, to me. So it's um, really profoundly shaped my scholarship, um, as have the, um, the strengths in my department in um, ethnic um, uh, studies um, or histories of underrepresented or of US minority um, uh, people, um, which 
um, again, in terms of like the cutting edge scholarship that's defining um, history now and, you know, I expect into the future for a considerable amount of time, that's where the action is and, and a lot of the really um, path breaking work is being done. And so I've benefited from having colleagues, you know, who've been able to guide me and help me with that. We also write, you say, living in a college town in the middle of a corn belt has taught me new ways at looking at the world. Um, and then you tell this wonderful story about arriving in Champaign the first couple of weeks or something. You you turn on the radio and are kind of blown away to hear weather reports from China and Brazil and Australia. And then, I mean, we're going to be moving into the heartland. You, you just got a sense that, you know, rather than just being a totally insular place, there was a lot more going on. Um, talk about that, if you would. Yeah, so I have to say, having grown up, you know, mostly on the East Coast and a little bit out of the country, even though I, you know, if you do my genealogy, I have family that goes back like at least six generations in the Midwest. I think I bought into some of the myths and stereotypes about the rural and small town Midwest, about being a little bit more like insular or provincial. Um, I, I confess to that. And as you say, when I moved to Champaign that first morning in town, I turned on the radio. It, it wasn't Argentina, it was, um, I mean, Australia, it was Argentina. Okay. Um, was, was on the radio um, account, as was the weather forecast for China and Brazil. And it was in conjunction, of course, with, you know, the commodities markets, right? And, and um, grain production um, elsewhere. But back in Boston, when I turned on the radio, I never got weather forecasts you know, for different parts of the world. So that was just utterly mind blowing for me. And, and I realized like, I do not understand the place where I have landed. And as I said earlier, I had been you know, doing a lot of reading stemming from the fall of the Berlin Wall and the greater attentiveness to like, you know, how do we think about um, global affairs in the aftermath of the Cold War and globalization um, was the bandwagon that everybody was hopping on. And so I've been reading a lot in that um, field. And what I hadn't appreciated until I moved to Champaign were the geographies that were embedded in that scholarship or implicit in that scholarship. And, and seeing that scholarship from Champaign-Urbana helped me appreciate that it's viewed towards global cities, um, you know, places like Chicago, um, New York, LA, and so forth. It's skewed towards coastal areas. It's skewed toward places that were recognized as borderlands areas. And then there were, you know, studies of places like tourist destinations and military bases and so forth. And then implicitly, there were all these places that were left behind. Um, and then I realized, you know, I was living in one of those places that had implicitly been left behind along with Appalachia and the Great Basin, and that there was a politics to it that a lot of the literature really valued connectedness, you know, human mobility, connectedness, and, and cosmopolitan kind of sensibilities. And then by implication, the people who were kind of mapped as local or provincial were somehow lesser on that hierarchy of, of values. And so, that was a motivator for me to try to figure out, you know, like, was this place, like, why am I getting these weather forecasts? And was this place really as local as, as outsiders, you know, were making it out to be um, historically? And then to try to figure out, you know, what, what were, you know, if any, beyond the obvious, you know, suspects like missionary accounts, military service, immigration um, kind of histories, what were the kind of histories that I might uncover? And it took me a while to get to it. I had already started my second book on imports into the United States, so sort of globivore um, consumption. Um, and I finished that book then before I got going on the one that became the heartland. 
Well, I want to read a couple sentences from the Heartland, and then maybe we can just kind of back up a little bit and 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 just discuss how you started connecting the dots and, and building this thesis. But this is actually uh, towards the end of the book. You write the Heartland myth insists that there is a stone solid core at the center of the nation, local, insulated, exceptional, isolationist, provincial, the America of America first, the home of homeland security the divining essence at the center of the land. This core may be threatened by outside forces, but stronghold that it is, it can be secured if locked down tight enough. By retreating back to a time of well-fenced fields and narrow paths, the nation can hold a fearsome, turbulent world at bay. Um, so how did you start putting the pieces of this, of your thesis together? Talk about just how this, how the, how the lights started flashing on and how you connected them? That's a really hard question um, because it was such a long process and there were so many paths I went down and paths not taken. So, you know, to try to re remember, you know, when things started to come together. I think one of the early things for me that um, a realization that shaped the book was thinking about one, the Midwest is an overlooked region. Um, so I think in terms of other regions of the country, um, it has been underrepresented in the historical um, scholarship. Um, in part, I think, you know, there are assumptions, you know, it's, it's maybe not as important, you know, to national histories as histories of, um, of the US Southeast, um, given the important of, importance of, you know, slavery and enslavement um, for shaping um, histories of race um, and inequality in the United States, and that Western historians have tended to focus on the trans-Mississippi West and then the, the huge oversized dominance um, of the Northeast for their role in shaping national histories kind of like left the Midwest out as the overlooked region. Um, and so one of the things I wanted to do um, was as I was saying earlier, was, you know, to think about this overlooked region in the context of, you know, everyone's thinking about global history. So, so that was a goal. But also, as I started to do the research, I kept bumping into kind of public statements, non like historical literature statements that were more about the mythological or the stereotypical, the flyover kind of assumptions about the Midwest. Um, which then led me to latch onto the heartland idea, which is not historical, you know, fundamentally it's mythological, right? About attributes that are assigned to this fuzzy, you know, it's, there's no set boundary or definition to it because it's an ideological concept, right? What the heartland is, you can't, you know, pinpoint it on a map because everyone disagrees over like what really counts as the heartland. And, that ideological concept has often been conflated with the Midwest um, in ways that I think have distorted history. So then I realized I wasn't just like telling a history of a place, I was also on telling stories about a place that I didn't really think were accurate and that did ideological work that I thought was pretty troubling in, in some cases. Um, and so then I was kind of operating on kind of parallel tracks about what are popular perceptions, often perceptions on the part of outsiders, but also, you know, perceptions of people in the Midwest who, you know, 
their own histories have been underwritten. Um, but also what was I kind of finding on a granular, granular level when I got going on my research. And then the challenge in writing it up is to kind of connect those two parts of the story. And in the end, I went with um, um, a combination of thematic material um, in each chapter and kind of a, a component of the myth that I was um, dealing with. So, so if the first part of the myth is locality, in the first chapter, I deal with mobility and the invention of locality, the idea of like calling the Midwest local when it hadn't been local, you know, originally and kind of claiming locality for political purposes. And then if another part of the heartland myth was about being um, um, insulated, um, then I thought about the Midwest, if you don't just locate it between East and West, but you tilt the access and it's between North and South, then it becomes a place where borderlands converge, where Northern borderlands with Canada converge with Southern borderlands with Mexico. And, and to tell that story of kind of converging borderlands, I focus on beef production um, on the wet prairie, which brought Canada and Mexico together on the feedlots and the um, breeding farms in the Midwest. And if a third assumption, um, about the Midwest is exceptionalism um, that I thought I would, you know, kind of track that down. And uh, one of the, the ways of getting at that story was to think about the larger um, global context of empire in my time period and how the Midwest was part of that, not only with settler colonialism, with like pioneers coming in and um, uh, appropriating um, Indian um, land and water, um, but also their involvement with larger imperial systems. And the biggest empire in my time period was the British Empire and the deep entanglements between the U US um, and, and the British Empire. And the way that I could tell that story um, that de-exceptionalized the Midwest was to the, the history of the Berkshire hog, um, which had British imperial um, ancestry, the railroad lines that enabled it to be um, exported, funded by British capital, leading export market was a British empire. It, it fed the British military and it fed British um, immigrants to places like Australia and South Africa. So that was, you, you know, mapping a Midwestern history of, of pigs, the history of being non-exceptional. Um, and then I have a chapter that tackles the idea of being isolationist. And then that's all about alliance politics, but agrarian alliance um, politics. And I argue that, you know, it was not never go alone. Um, it was never, um, uh, a kind of a, a neutral place and it wasn't a unilateral place that there were a lot of agrarian solidarities um, that you can track through scientific agriculture in the Midwest. And then on the topic of provinciality, I thought I would just play around with that, with the flyover idea, right? And so I thought, okay, if I'm, I'm gonna try to get it, like how people imagine themselves in the world, how do you do that? That's a difficult thing to do. And having a topic might help. And I thought, what about airspace, right? That, that kind of pushes back a, a, against flyover and what does it mean to be flown over? And how do people on the ground kind of view their place in the world? And, and to think about like what, what lent itself to connection. And it was really difficult for a long period of time to travel via land, um, which was really swampy, um, and to travel via water. There's snags and, you know, before steamboats, it's the downstream. And, you know, water is also, you know, you have to follow the water routes. But air is just like open and, and you know, can, you can be linked to anywhere with few obstacles. So I have a whole chapter on, you know, geographic imaginings through airspace that involve things like meteorology, economic ornithology, which is hugely important for farmers, right? Using birds for insect pest control um, 
turned farmers into a major constituency for bird protection on legislation. And then things like long distance um, balloon competitions, like you, you wouldn't like launch your balloon right by a lake or the coast because it might go down over water, right? You would launch your balloon from the Midwest because there's a lot of land all around. And then barnstorming early aviation and ultimately military aviation and the Rantoul um, Air Force um, Base. So um, those were you know, things that um, featured largely in the um, airspace chapter. And then the final chapter tackled the idea of the Midwest as a national safe space. Um, and what I wanted to get at in that chapter was that ideas about the heartland um, have been very exclusionary, right? They assume that they're people who are insiders and the insiders get mapped literally like in the middle of the country, but insiders aren't in the heartland kind of mythology. They tend to be white, um, rural Christian um, people and not representative of the United States as, as a whole. So if the Midwest is understood as like the heartland is the ultimate safe space, then who are the people who are excluded? And what do those insider outsider kind of divisions um, mean for them? And so for that chapter, I, I circled back to where I started where the Kickapoo people um, figure, figure really largely in the first chapter. They also figure really largely um, in the last chapter, um, which thinks about like what, happened to Kickapoo after they were forcibly expelled from um, East Central um, Illinois. And some Kickapoos ended up in Mexico. Um, and um, I um, try to tell parts of the this, this story um, involving um, them that is a story of exile and dispossession and, and loss and kind of reflects on um, wall building and um, efforts to tightly bound space, delineating between insiders and outsiders from the perspective of people who, you know, were walled out um, from um, belonging, even though, you know, their ancestors um, called the Midwest home, you know, well before mine did. Well, and one of the, the, the kind of central frames of your book is Champaign County, uh, kind of understanding the world from Champaign County. And, um, I mean, and of course, the University of Illinois looms so large in this account, and and you you also reference scientific agriculture. I mean, we forget what an absolutely astonishingly important force agriculture was for generating transnational contacts and so forth. Um, in fact, I, I want to read one sentence you, you were talking about. Uh, you said, "Pick up a musty old farming journal." a rural newspaper or an agricultural report from the Midwest, and you will find aspirations of conquering the globe. Talk about just agriculture and just sort of scientific um, agriculture education as this force of, of, of intensifying contacts. Yeah, so let, let me just start with the local history bit and then I'll cut to the scientific agriculture. So, so my method is local history. And um, I think I could have written a similar book about any county um, in Illinois, and in fact, any county in, in neighboring states, or you know, perhaps the United States as well. So, even though I take local history as my method, it's not like the story I tell in its fundamentals is unique to Champaign, but it was a great method because it enabled me. Basically, my method was to find a lead 
and then to track it down, you know, to see how far it would lead me. And by having a small starting point, it enabled me to identify a number of leads that then I could conceivably follow. And I could, you know, end up writing in the same book about like a polar explorer on the one hand and diarrhea epidemics and British ships on the other. You know, it took me down all kinds of paths I never would have gone down if I had started with kind of a, you know, a, a thematic, you know, kind of conception of what I wanted to follow. But writing about a largely rural county made me focus on agriculture in ways in the beginning, I guess I was kind of naive, you know, I had all these different themes, I thought I was going to pursue like religion and so forth. And I realized like, I'm writing about rural people, and agriculture is, is their livelihood, it's just, you know, fundamental to who they are. And so it ended up being a book about, you know, um, not just the kinds of global connections that you might find in any place, but focusing on the kinds of global connections that you would find in a rural agricultural um, community. And, um, my time period is mostly the long 19th century. I, you know, have some stories that, that take us beyond that, but but that's my um, core um, time period. So the time that's often seen as like the most local time, right? And I turn the most local time inside out and say, well, actually, you know, the, the history of this place was global before it became local. And um, scientific agriculture was key um, to that. And so in part, it was, you know, just like the composition of the state, right? The, the In terms of, you know, the plants and the animals, um, that you find in Illinois now um, are largely imported. Il Illinois is the prairie state, it's the so-called prairie state, but less than one-tenth of one percent of Illinois is native tall grass prairie. And it's not just because of you, you know, paving it over in, in big cities or suburbanization, but it's, it's about imported species. And many of them were imported in the long 19th century and they were imported purposefully as a means of production. The means of production was largely imported. And you know, corn, you could say it's domestic, but it was like different strains. It wasn't the strains that the Kickapoo people were planting that are now um, pervasive here. And soy was introduced, um, you know, the other major crop. Central Illinois was introduced in the early 20th century. And then farmers were, you know, they were export oriented from the start and they, you know, wanted to make a, a good living. And so they, you know, were experimenting with all kinds of things, you know, um, with the, like weed and oats and rye and, 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 you know, the kinds of things they'd have in their own, you know, farmhouse gardens, the cabbages, the raspberries, the apple trees, all imported. And um, they benefited from the US Department of Agriculture, which um, sent out bioprospectors in this time period. It was a golden age of bioprospecting. And they would go search the world for seeds and uh, promising um, plant material um, to enhance economic productivity. That, that was the goal. And also um, livestock breeding. Um, it was an age in which there was much more purposeful kind of scientific breeding of animals, not just you know every farmer would kind of breed their own herds, but um, People would specialize in breeding and then we're going to Europe was the leading destination um, to import prized um, animals. In many cases, you know, they would be bulls um, because they, you know, could produce more um, offspring. Um, but in some you know, cases, like with the shorthorn um, cows as well. And um, often they were um, um, bulls that had been crossed with like their daughters and granddaughters and great granddaughters to make a very fixed um, line. And dense networks um, that connected the, the breeders, you know, who, who shaped herds across the state um, with breeders in places like Canada and Northern Europe and senses of like really belonging to a common agricultural um, community. Um, and if people were investing in a particular animal line, then they're in 
you know, making investments that aren't just national investments, but all the shorthorn breeders have an interest in the success of the shorthorn breed because that's where their assets are. Ditto for the Berkshire pig breeders. And as someone new to agricultural history and, and the history of farming, the thing that was just most mind blowing to me was just how racialized the animals were. Like they would talk about the pigs as Anglo-Saxonist pigs. And they would talk about the British pigs as being equivalent to British military personnel that they could be like go dominate worldwide. They would prosper in any climb. They would dominate over native you know, pigs in any place in the world. They could fatten on anything and, and that they were gonna end up ruling the world. And ditto for like the short horn animals, you know, the ones that were um, imported from Canada and Britain, like they could trace their ancestry in the herd books and they were expensive animals. They were celebrity animals and they often had aristocratic names. So the people who were investing in them, they're like tied to aristocratic circles in Britain and they understand themselves as like akin to these British elites, you know, many of them titled and they're invested in these like Anglo-Saxonist animals. And then they look at the animals that are also ending up on their farms in, in Illinois that they're importing for um, fattening purposes um, once they turn to, you know, um, feedlot um, style corn of fattening um, operations. You know, some of the animals were from Indian country, present day like Oklahoma area, some were from Texas, but a lot of them, you know, the border between Texas and Mexico was not well patrolled in the time period. And the crossing back and forth across that border was really significant with people rustling animals, building up their herds, buying low cost, you know, cost animals and so forth. So they were also importing a lot of animals from Mexico for fattening purposes. And they understood them totally differently um, in part because they were longhorns, they were lower value, uh, many of them were steers, they weren't going to be um, reproducing, um, but they also understood them in racialized terms as the African descended animals that were brought over from Spain at the time of Cortez and that it only degenerated. And so when they're thinking about how to patrol like the U.S. Canadian border and the U.S. Mexican border, these farmers are thinking about those relationships in terms of their, you know, human networks or lack thereof. Um, with people in Canada and people in Mexico and with how they understand animals in terms of racial um, attributes with the assumption being that like Mexicans need us studs to go down from Illinois to improve their stock, which, you know, in the kind of racist context of the time had both human and animal um, implications. And then when there were disease outbreaks, the tendency was we collaborate with Canada and we exclude from Mexico. We build we build, you know, um, barriers to entry from um, Mexico. So really, I think significant implications for thinking about um, how the United States should position itself in a hemispheric um, context that played out in specifically agrarian um, ways. And I could go on, there's so many more, you know, aspects of scientific um, agriculture. Let me just mention one, one more thing, um, which was just mind blowing um, to me, which, which was international students um, and how they came to Illinois, to the Uni University of Illinois, um, in the earliest years of the um, uh, um, 1900s to study not only engineering um, in Illinois, but also to study agriculture. They were attracted by the scientific agricultural um, education that was offered here. Um, in part um, under the leadership of Eugene Davenport, who was an early dean of the Egg School, who came to the post from Brazil that, you know, he was from Michigan originally, but had done a tour in Brazil 
um, before he was hired by Illinois. He came back via Rothamsted, which is a leading research um, institute in Britain for agriculture. And when he visited Rothamsted, he's like, you know, the kind of lesser cousin, right? You know, they kind of condescend to let him tour the operations. And he ended up in Illinois and he's like, I'm gonna build an empire. I'm gonna make Illinois, you know, the leading place to study scientific agriculture. And he recruited students from places like Mexico and the Philippines and China and India. And they networked on campus and, and, and networked politically. They, they formed a group, the Cosmopolitan Club, um, which part of it was kind of cultural celebration, right? You know, um, music and dance and food from different um, places. But there was also an anti-colonial nationalist politics to the Cosmopolitans um, who wanted the British out of India, the US out of the Philippines, um, national independence. And, you know, just um, mind-blowingly to me, you know, to think about the rural Midwest in the early 1900s is kind of a hotbed of anti-colonial nationalist um, organizing in part because of agricultural circuits. So that was a, a real um, discovery. Well, one institution that I, as I read your book, I said, I wanna know more about it is the Illinois Central Railroad. What an important force in the state and also just really in the commerce and uh, development of, of the United States. Talk a little bit uh, about the, the Illinois. In fact, you have someone quoting, it's, it's more of a land company than a railroad. So, uh, and a lot of British capital flowed into the, the um, Illinois Central Railroad, as I understand. So talk a little bit about the, the railroads important to the state and to the nation. Yeah, so it was the first land grant railroad in the United States. So, you know, it's hugely significant in that respect. And um, it, it um, um, came into being in the 1850s in, in the time when the United States was short of capital. And so as was common in the time period, um, people in need of capital in the US went to London uh, where the deep pockets were. And so a lot of the initial investment was British investment, but it didn't always go so well for the British investors. They sent a team over um, to take a look at the operations. And that was the eureka moment where it's not a railroad company, it's a land grant, uh, it's a land um, selling company. And so then the uh, British investors worked really hard um, to sell land along the ICR, the Illinois Central Railroad um, to um, uh, uh, British um, emigrants, you know, who would then enrich the um, investors. In terms of thinking about like export markets, one of the things that made it so significant is that traffic could go both ways. And, and previously, a lot of the traffic was channeled towards the low end markets of the South, right? So it was floated down rivers. We know, you know, for example, thinking about Abraham Lincoln's um, experiences, you put it on a flat boat, float it downstream, and then, you know, break up the boat and maybe walk back before um, steamships. And that tended to channel the traffic then towards the, the, the US South and and to you know think, things like pork products toward feeding enslaved people and towards Caribbean islands, which again, the labor force is enslaved people. And so it's a low end market, right? Like plantation owners are not gonna spend a lot of money to provide good, much less adequate food for enslaved workers. And so the, the understanding was that the, the big money was to be made in Europe. And then once the railroad was built, it enabled the, um, the um, um, you know the hogs, the uh, beef, the the grain, and so forth to be shipped north um, more easily, um, and it made Chicago the leading you know kind of center for for meat packing and, and more important for um, you know its um, 
uh, grain shipping and Chicago then through the Great Lakes and then through the, the railroads that then um, went to, you know, New York was the leading um, port, but for livestock, even Halifax um, in Canada mattered. It channeled things to the East Coast, which then enabled the transatlantic shipping and access to the more lucrative markets of Europe, the high-end markets. And so the railroad was really significant in redirecting, in concentrating trade in Chicago, making Chicago, um, you know, what it became and then redirecting trade um, to, to Northern Europe in, in ways that really benefited Midwestern farmers. Right. Well, I loved as I was reading your book, just the, the sources that you drew from. And I, I had not realized there were that many agricultural publications from the prairie farmer, the Illinois agriculturalists. It was just some wonderful uh, tidbits. But I, but I also loved you have a feature called archival traces at the beginning of chapters in which you effectively kind of clips that show the the international forces at work. And I have to I have one of them that I absolutely love and I wanted to describe it real briefly and, and have you comment about it. It was um, from the Urbanic Courier in 1909, December 18th, 1909. And the article was called Louis Castorf is home at last. And apparently this was an 18 year old boy, uh, the son of Mr. and Mrs. Kasdorf of Urbana, who had run away four years earlier. And during that time, he had been to nine countries, Australia, Japan, China, Egypt, Holland, Germany, England, and Scotland and Ireland. He'd been a sailor, he'd served in the Irish army, tried to desert twice, was arrested. And then the consul general from the US got him pulled out of jail, I guess, and sent back to Champagne. And the article says, he's come home, but we're not sure for how long. Whatever happened to Lewis, do you know, or uh, I mean, or even more broadly, how you how you use these kind of particular stories to just kind of tell a more kind of a richer description of of the human beings that were living while these big forces were at play. Yeah. So while you were talking, I thought of one more railroad thing. So so let me go back and then I'll talk about the archival traces and past art. So the the thing I forgot to say about the railroads is that um, early histories of US empire building that focused on agricultural exports um, did not pay attention to the imports that I've been talking about, right? To the importing the means of production. And one of the things that the railroad story helps us understand is one, the importance of like imported capital, right? That enabled, you know, the the um, the export of, of goods to Europe, but it also in the long term provided really important connections to the Caribbean. So when the kind of empire building unfolded in the Caribbean that has long been associated with the agrarian desire for export markets, you know, the desire for coaling stations and Panama Canal construction, the Illinois Central was positioned for that trade. And over the long term, you know, the British capital investments, you know, kind of receded, became US um, owned. But those earlier kind of imperial infrastructural investments then enabled the shipping of bananas and coconuts and close connections with the growing kind of business empire of US agents in the Caribbean. So that, so that kind of 
you know, extra territorial empire connects back to, to the um, earlier 19th century um, stories that I write about. As for the archival traces, I, I don't know exactly what happened to Castro, but that's part of the point that it was so hard to track down so much of the stuff that's in the book, right? Like when you read a history book, you think, oh, like, you know, this is easy stuff to do, right? You just, you know, kind of, I don't know, open an account and it's all there. But no, this is like finding needles in haystacks, um, which is one of the beauties of the local history method is it limits your haystack, right? You have your haystack and you can kind of take it apart straw by straw, but it can be very challenging to find out, you know, what happened to people. And I think if I had wanted to, I could have spent a lot more time on the story. But the point was like, when I was doing the research, there were a million leads I didn't track down because I didn't have time and I didn't want to write a thousand page book, but I wanted to put them in there to give a sense of different possibilities to make it clear that I'm not telling the only story that can be told. There are countless additional stories that are out there and to give a textured sense of like, you know, here, here are some beginning points, you know, that one could follow and they'll take you down a, you know, in, in the broader sense, it's the same path. It's about global connections, but the details of that path, you know, depend on which leads you, you choose um, to follow. And so I think in that sense, they're there to kind of signal, you know, just how, how rich the topic is, right? How much more there is out there that's waiting um, to be explored and, and just how, um, what I'm able to talk about in my book is just the tip of the iceberg. Well, you you mentioned um, in in a couple contexts um, just this growing interest in Midwestern history, and I think in the last several years there's been a an online magazine called Rust that deals with the Rust Belt. I think there's been a Midwestern History Association that has developed a, a Middle West Review, a couple really good books on Midwestern history. Do you think regional history is is supplanting state history? And even maybe to some extent national history that we're starting to look at the world more is is just regions. Hmm, that's a good question. So I don't think supplanting, but I think like supplementing and and adding to right. You know, I don't think it's a kind of a winner loser you know kind of situation, um, but that um, people who you know are particularly interested in Illinois history benefit from larger attentiveness to regional history and regional histories benefit from deep attention to specific places. So I, I hope that it's a, um, you know, the, the rising sea lifts all boats kind of situation instead of if there's more attention to Midwestern history, then specific state histories are going to suffer. Um, you know, I think that would be unfortunate. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. Well, we have a, we have a couple questions I want to get to, Kristen. One of them is from Catherine from Chicago, and she writes, in Illinois, there's a very real and perceived competition between the Chicago area and downstate. In your research and expertise, what is the greatest shared interest and opportunity um, that Chicago and the rural parts of the state share? Um, and I, I might just say that in your, your book, you make some reference to a, an earlier book about 30 years ago by Cronin, who did some really kind of pioneering work on the relationship between Chicago and the rest of the state and the, the, the region. So I guess just broadly the relationship between Chicago and downstate and how that has changed. Yeah, that's such a hard question um, to answer. Um, 
you know, I guess in, in part because Chicago and downstate share um, so much as do, you know, other parts of the country. And that's one of the fundamental points of the book, right, is instead of thinking about ways in which, you know, we can separate people is to think about connections across different jurisdictions, right? Like that's an underlying main um, goal of the book. But let me just reflect a little bit on, you know, how I'm in conversation with Bill Cronin's wonderful um, book, Nature's um, Metropolis, which is Chicago and the, and the making of the Great West, is I think he, he comes to the topic from urban studies. And so it's, it's very much like a city in its hinterlands, you know, kind of um, study. And he, he wrote that book before the whole turn to the global. And so there are, you know, kind of allusions to capital, you know, outside of the United States and, you know, some to like Canadian uh, railroad routes, but it's very much a, a national um, story. And so writing in a different time period, I think I benefited from the whole like opening out to the global and my book is you know much more um focused on that um, than his i think you know because of the conversations i was embedded in when i wrote my book but i also wanted to write a history of connection that wasn't urban because so many histories of globality global connection human mobility they focus on urban areas and as i said at the very beginning it has tended to to cast rural and smaller town areas is more local and parochial and provincial. And, you know, that that was the question that animated the book is, you know, like, how, how accurate are these representations? And if there are different histories of connection, what do they look like? And so I think in that sense, um, my book is a rejoinder to the assumption that if you want to find histories of connection, you have to go through the urban areas. And of course, Chicago matters to my book. It, you know, it's, it's a global city. It matters profoundly. But a lot of the um, connections, if you're thinking about like agricultural circuits, they get routed through places like land grant colleges and they get routed through places like Springfield with this, you know, kind of publication um, 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 landscape, and they get routed through things like livestock shows and and um, um, breeders, you know, kind of conventions and circuits, which are not always in Chicago, right? So there are different geographies of connection that I think are important for us to understand, um, you know, just to understand, you know, the making of the modern world, but also so that people who live in small towns in rural America understand their own history, right? The history of the, the places in which they're living haven't always been inward looking, small scale, small community kind of histories, but um, histories of, of connection and affinity and mobility and um, global awareness, um, you know, that go back well, well, well before our own time. Good. Charles from Hoffman Estates asks, is it fair to think of Illinois as a battleground between isolationist and internationalist forces? Yeah, so um, that's a million dollar question. So uh, the Midwest has often been characterized as the most isolationist part of the country. And one of the things I argue about is that um, unfairly, pins politics to place, right? And I think it's because the assumption is like coastal people can't be isolationists because they're on the coast, right? People in big cities can't be isolationists because they live in, you know, multi-ethnic, you know, multilingual, you know, um, global cities. And if we want to imagine what an isolationist would look like, like, let's just think about the middle of the country in a small community, right? And that's how we're going to like define isolationism and, and have a face 
you know, or a, 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 a place that can kind of represent those politics. But it, as I show in the book, it never existed, right? And, and um, you know, there could be political moments in which like representatives from different states might, you know, be against the Versailles Treaty, but it doesn't mean they're isolationist. Um, and that it kind of distorts, I think, politics by mapping it on uh, to place. And it distorts place by kind of presuming there's a certain politics that historically um, hasn't existed. So that would be my response to that. Okay, good. Well, uh, uh, Kristen, I know you, one of the things that you teach um, is historical research and writing um, at the U of I. And there's been a lot of talk about just, you know, on the one hand, a lot of rising interest in history from, you know, the, the kind of uh, from the, the, the public. But the fact that, you know, historians have oftentimes or sometimes write in a kind of arcane, specialized language that is not accessible to, you know, regular people. And so they're kind of speaking and talking to themselves. As someone who, who's teaching, you know, rising scholars, I mean, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you urge them to, to develop their voice in a way that is both academically rigorous and credible, but also is accessible to the, the broader public? Ooh, yeah, so, I try to learn from Fred Streeby, the writing tutor we started with, right? And to try to repeat some of the lessons in my own um, classrooms. Writing is such a time consuming and difficult thing to teach because it's iterative, right? Because you don't sit down and write the polished paper. It involves draft after draft after draft after draft. So if you wanna teach writing, then it involves a lot of reading. Um, and I try to embed like some peer reviewing um, in many of my syllabi to expose students to good writing. You know, I, I think students have to read to be able to write and, and um, you, you have to read extensively and voraciously and things in different genres and different voices. And so I think just, you know, assigning, um, exemplars of reading um, can be helpful. And then to pay attention, you know, depending on the class to how things are written, you know, the close reading skills can, you know, help students, you know, think about how things are expressed um, in ways that might be able to benefit um, their writing. And I know we're moving it, especially in our grad program, but um, in the undergrad program as well, um, towards like thinking more broadly about career diversity. And part of that can involve assignments that are not just writing, you know, kind of academic papers, but more kind of public facing writing like blog posts um, or op-ed pieces. Um, and so in some of my classes, I try to craft writing assignments with different audiences in mind. So they're not just writing for me, the professor, but they're writing for imagined publics. And I think that can be a really useful um, thing to do. I, I once read an essay by Barbara Tuckman, the, the kind of the great narrative historian, who said something like, research is endlessly seductive, writing is hard work. Is that your experience? It's very hard work. Yeah, I just love the research stage. <laughs> you know, maybe that's why my books take so long to come out, is that it's such a delight to just, you know, follow those leads to try to get to the bottom of things. And, you know, if you're infinitely curious and history is a great field for people who are infinitely curious, then you could spend lifetimes, right? Just tracking down the leads before you ever feel ready to put things down 
um, on um, paper. And you really have to sharpen your thoughts when you start to write. And if you don't know exactly what you're saying, which is always the case for me, when you start to write, writing makes you think about what it is exactly that you were trying to say. And that um, um, is exhausting. But when you finally figure it out, there is nothing that brings greater joy um, to me, at least. Well, let me ask you finally, I saw in one essay you were, this was maybe a couple of years ago, where you were pondering some kind of book related to the Great Lakes. Is that still something you're thinking about? Or um, where are you in, on that project? Yeah, so the pandemic has really sent me back um, a lot of my research, but I'm, I'm hoping to get it um, back up to speed um, now. And I spent a lot of time digging around um, over the last two years on different leads with the Great Lakes. And and this is the research process, right? Like, we're, you know, you, you could spend a lifetime following different paths. And the path that I think I'm going to go down is going to take me away from the Great Lakes. Um, but it stems from reading about hydroelectric production across the U.S. Canadian border in the Niagara area. And the realization that US and Canadian firms subsequently invested together in hydroelectric projects in the Caribbean and, and central Mexico. And so as somebody who, who writes about like dollar or reads and researches about like dollar diplomacy and informal empire, kind of economic empire in that area, it's a story of like US, right? Economic dominance and US corporations like the United Fruit Company kind of working independently. And the Canadian angle is not there. And I was like, well, this is interesting to me. I want to pursue it. And the more I pursued it, the more I realized that the larger history that I want to get at is one of infrastructure building, which is so, so incredibly timely now, right? In part because of like Belt and Road initiatives, but also because of a realization with climate change that our, our infrastructures from the past century are not up to the job ahead. And it's not only the technical components of them, the kind of engineering components, but the social justice components, right? The politics that went into infrastructure building. And the question that is just getting me really excited these days is what did it mean that the you know kind of great day of infrastructure building that led to the big carbon era um, occurred in the heyday of empire. And how do those two stories fit together in stories of infrastructure building in places like the Caribbean and Latin America? Um, and so that's the story right now that I think I'm going to end up um, following. And so you know, it's a process. Ask me in six months, and it might be a little bit different uh, depending on what I find. But I'm finding a lot of really interesting things, and I think I'll stick with it. Right. Well, let me ask you finally, how do you like to relax? Do you uh, when you're when you're I know you have a, you know, heavy teaching responsibilities and you advise Ph.D. students and write and research. But are you we had this interview with Margaret McMillan, who said that she loved to read mystery novels. That was sort of her uh, decompression. Do you uh, uh, do you have a, a, a favorite way to just relax? Well, my neighbors think I'm crazy because I'm always like out grubbing weeds in my yard um, with my bare hands. I like to eradicate all autumn olive and I like to go hiking, um, which in East Central Illinois, um, I don't get a lot of elevation, but I, I do like to just be outside to run, to hike, to garden. Yeah. Great. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for a really great conversation. The hour just flew by, and I would encourage people to read um, uh, Kristen's book, The Heartland. It really is a remarkably interesting book, 
and as I say, really helps you, uh, kind of challenges you to think about Illinois in a different way. So Kristen, we will stay in touch and uh, look forward to reading more uh, books that come out uh, under your name. Thank you so much, John. It was just really fun. And thanks for the good work that you're doing with the Paul Simon Institute. Thank you for listening to SimonCast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. SimonCast is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find SimonCast wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.